Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 12. And we'll be reading from verse 12 to 19. John 12, verse 12 to 19. And if you don't have your Bibles, they'll be up here on the screen for you. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to feast to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we pray that during this time we may focus our hearts on you. Father, set our eyes on you. Set our minds on you. Reorient our souls to find rest, deep rest on you. Our satisfaction on you. Lord Jesus, may we not leave this room and this worship without you. In our minds, in our hearts, in our speech, Uh, May we take you with us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There were once four women who were gathered for coffee and they were just talking about life. And sometimes what parents tend to do is talk about their children. So one of the women started saying, you know, there's no one holier than my son. He's an ordained Presbyterian reverend of a large church, and whenever he comes into the room, everyone greets him by saying, good morning, reverend, and shakes his hand. The second lady responded, that's nothing. My son happens to be a bishop, and when he comes into the room, everyone greets him by saying, your excellency, and then they bow and kiss his ring. The third woman went next I've got you both beat. My son happens to be a cardinal, and he's actually in Rome right now with Pope Francis. And when he comes into the room, everyone says, your eminence. And then they kneel down and kiss his ring and begin crying when he pronounces a blessing over them. The fourth woman, who was waiting patiently watching this this whole thing unfold, waited her turn and then finally spoke up and said, well, my son happens to be a deacon. At his church. He weighs 400 pounds, is seven feet tall, and when he comes into the room, everyone exclaims, Oh my God. (laughs) Humility can be a hard thing, can it? I mean, someone once described humility as something that the moment you think you have it, you lost it. And as we celebrate Palm Sunday this morning, I think we all come with a certain expectation and interpretation of who we want Jesus Christ to be for us. Maybe for some of us, some of you, Jesus is your best friend. He's the one who listens to you and is by your side during times, hard times. For others, Jesus is your counselor. When you find yourselves in times of trouble, it's not Mother Mary that comes to you. 
but it's Jesus speaking words of wisdom. Maybe let it be. Perhaps for you, Jesus is just a good religious teacher. He's smart and he has good things to say, but ultimately he just brings good advice. Whether you take it or you don't, it doesn't matter. It's on you. For some of you, Jesus is your primary physician. You turn to him for regular physical checkups, and most of your prayers and petitions are for him to heal you or for physical things. How about this one? Is Jesus your professional life coach, someone who helps you advance in your career, in your family life, or your finances, or even to your time management so you can live a comfortable, balanced life? Whichever expectation you may have of Jesus, I want, us, I want to suggest that we lay those aside during our time together. And I want us to look at how John the Apostle gives us a picture of Jesus that may actually help us see him for who he really is. So here's the gospel point that, I want, that John is offering us this morning. If this works, it's not on. Okay, now it's on. Jesus is the humble king, and his humility brings hope that makes our hearts go after him. So this is the main point that I want to speak on today. Jesus is the humble king, and his humility brings hope that makes our hearts just go after him. I want to look at three things that the beloved disciple wants us to see about Jesus from this passage. So first, the king's character. Secondly, the king's cause. And thirdly, the king's cost. So the king's character, the king's cause, and the king's cost. So first, the king's character. The first thing that, we, that John wants us to see is that Jesus is a humble king. We read from verse 12 that there was a large crowd who actually gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. And we have to say, which feast? Well, this was the Passover feast, which Jewish people celebrated to remember when God delivered them from Egypt. In American culture, this would be sort of equivalent to July 4th. I mean, imagine going to, July, uh, to Washington, D.C. to celebrate July 4th. If you go, probably the most beautiful thing you could see aside from the fireworks and the cherry blossoms is actually a parking spot on the streets, right? <laughs> Needless to say, Jerusalem was filled with people. Some scholars estimate that there was approximately more than 500,000 people who would be gathered for this feast. And this was not including the locals and possibly non-Jews, women, and children. So during this feast, the regular population of about 15,000 people jumped to more than a half million souls. And the hot topic that everyone is talking about, everyone is discussing, John tells us, is Jesus. Everyone is talking about Jesus, his miracles, his teachings, and most likely how he brought Lazarus from the dead. Everyone wanted to see Jesus, and everyone certainly wanted to see Lazarus. So when they hear that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, this mass group of people, they all line up. And they take palm branches and begin singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And we have to pause here and ask ourselves, why palm branches? What's the meaning of palm branches? Why would they use palm branches? Well, In Jewish history, about 150 years ago, there was a man named Simon Maccabee. And Simon Maccabee 
was a military general who drove out the Syrian invasion from Jerusalem. And as he enters the city back in victory, the people took palm branches as a symbol of military victory and freedom for, from oppression. So when the people do the same for Jesus, what they're doing is that they're signaling the entry of a war hero. A military leader who will lead them against victory against Rome and freedom from oppression once and for all. That's why they're singing Hosanna, which literally translates to save us now. As Jesus is coming in, they're saying Hosanna, which means save us now. Salvation has come. Rome will fall. See, understanding this historical symbol or this historical meaning, we also have to pause and ask a very, very interesting question. Why palm branches for Jesus? Not just palm branches in general, but why palm branches for Jesus? Because so far, if you've been with us throughout our series in the life of John, uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus' life was not characterized by aggression or military victory, but peaceful marches. I mean, Jesus was more of a pacifist than an outlaw or, or a rebel. His message was one of peace and not of defiance or revolt. I mean, Jesus is the guy who taught submission and to turn the other cheek when someone slaps you. Parents, if you sent your child to karate or taekwondo lessons and when they came back, you asked them, so what did you learn? And they said, the most ancient, powerful move of all, turning the other cheek. (laughs) Would you not want to take them out of that school because that's that's not what it was for? The reason, then why palm branches for Jesus? Well, here's, here's why. The reason is that the mentality of the population was that Jesus was going to deliver them from political tyranny. And they were ready to join uh, this powerful uh, king and fight alongside him. I mean, wouldn't you want to enlist as a soldier in the army of the one? If you got stabbed, you can, he can say a word and you'll be healed. Wouldn't you want to enlist as a soldier of a commander where if you're struck down by the sword, he can speak a word and bring you back to life? He did it with Lazarus, he can do it with us. If you're blinded or become deaf through battle, he can spit on you and immediately recover sight. And he has infinite amounts of spit. Wouldn't you want to fight alongside a commander who can call upon the winds and manipulate the weather at the command of his voice? When you're in the desert... During a military campaign, and your back is against the waters, wouldn't you want to be following the one who can walk right on water and into freedom? When you're in the desert and you're staking out, you don't have to worry what you're going to eat and drink because Jesus can multiply loaves of bread and fish, and he can provide the best wine you've ever had and feed more than 5,000. So it comes with no surprise that this crowd was actually riled up and ready to receive King Jesus, this mighty, this splendorous, this majestic, this powerful king. And I'm going to follow that king. And it is against this backdrop, this expectation that Jesus redefines what power is and what it looks like. He redefines what it means to be great. And instead of choosing to ride in a war horse or a chariot, we read in verse 14 that Jesus found a donkey and he chose to sit on it instead. And this word found 
is meaningful because it doesn't mean that it was accidental, but it was actually very, very intentional. John doesn't tell us the details, but the other gospel writers in recording the same incident do. And they tell us that Jesus commands the disciples exactly where to find this donkey and exactly what to say to its owner so that they will let the donkey go. So Jesus finding this donkey was not an accident, but a very premeditated and carefully chosen decision as he enters Jerusalem. And we have to pause here and ask the question, what does John want us to see about Jesus? What does John want us to see about Jesus? John wants us to see that Jesus is a humble king. I mean, this was Jesus' moment. This whole crowd was more excited about him than the Passover feast possibly. The crowd was already worshiping him. They were already singing songs to him. They were singing Psalm 118 for Jesus. Couldn't Jesus just treat himself in this one thing and write in with glory? John tells us no. No. Because it was against his very character. Jesus is a humble king. It's actually the other way around. See, Jesus' life is marked by intentional, premeditated choices to redefine beauty and power. See, as God, he could have been born in a palace, but instead he chooses to be born in an animal manger. He could have been born to kings and queens and nobles or war generals, but instead he chooses to be born to a 14-year-old girl and a simple carpenter. As a teacher, he could have taught in the greatest institutions in the land, surrounded by the greatest minds of his time, but instead, he chooses to spend most of his time in the streets with farmers, fishermen, women, and children. He could have died a glorious, honorable death in the battlefield with maybe a very memorable last battle cry, freedom, but instead, he chooses to die on a shameful cross, and one of his last words being, I'm thirsty. His burial was not one with the highest military honors, but instead, he, he chose to be laid on a borrowed tomb. See, this leads us to ask a very interesting question, which is, was Jesus weak? Optically, by worldly standards? Absolutely. But John tells us that Jesus was actually meek. He was humble. See, meekness is not weakness. Don't you dare to think that the Lord Jesus was weak, but John is saying he was absolutely meek. See, meekness is when someone doesn't abuse their power though they could have or insist on their own way and desires even if they have all the right to in the world. But it's actually meekness is refusing to live a life centered around the self. And for Jesus, the road to power was not determined by how many people serve you, but how many people you serve. See, success was not determined by your title or knowledge or independence from anybody's help, but your ever-increasing reliance as a child of God. And the measure of riches was not on how much you own, but how much you give away. And if you keep reading, a few chapters later, John shows us that Jesus is the type of king who is willing to and not afraid to go low. And we have to ask, how low? Well, low enough to wash his disciples' feet. This is the king 
that when he could have saved himself, chose not to pray to his father for, the, uh, for his salvation, but rather for the forgiveness of the very people who voted to crucify him. Jesus chose the donkey. He is the humble king. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, gives us a good definition of humility. And according to Lewis, the truly humble man or woman, quote, will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. In other words, humility is not thinking less of yourselves, uh, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not self-deprecating or attacking your ego or your self-esteem, but is actually taking less time to think about your needs and your wants and think about other people. And how true this is of Jesus, who for our sake is willing to put down his crown so that he can take on a cross. Church, your king is a king with no pride. Are you a humble follower of him? If you're not a Christian here today, we're so glad that you're here. And as you're hearing all these things about Jesus, my question to you this morning is is this. If you had to give your allegiance to a king, would you not want to give your allegiance to a king with this type of humility? Would you not want to give your allegiance to a king who is not afraid to commune with you and does not sit on a high horse but is willing to have a personal relationship with you regardless of social, economic, racial gap. See, what makes Christianity so different is than any other religion is that our God, Jesus, never considered himself too good to walk among us. Jesus never considered himself too rich to not share with us, too smart or knowledgeable to give us just a manual, but rather he becomes a manual. Jesus never considered himself too righteous to die for sinners. So the first thing that John wants us to see is that Jesus, Jesus, our Lord, is a humble king. He chooses the donkey. But the question remains, if Jesus did not come to challenge Roman rule and set the Jewish people in Jerusalem free, then what was his cause as he enters Jerusalem? What was he after? Which leads us to the second point, the king's cause. Jesus' cause was spiritual and not political. Let me repeat that. Jesus' cause was spiritual and not political. John tells us that King Jesus entered Jerusalem not to sit on the emperor's throne, but to sit on people's hearts. See, Jesus was far more concerned uprooting the self-entitlement of people to live life as they see fit than fitting into anybody's political agenda. And we know this because in verse 15... John gives us a messianic fulfillment of Jesus. Now, what does this mean? It's like this. A few months ago, Jen and I uh, were watching a Netflix documentary on Marie Kondo called Tidying Up. If you're laughing, it's because you already watched it too. So that makes me feel better. Marie Kondo is, actually, is a Japanese organizing consultant, and she gives tips on how to live an organized and clutter-free lifestyle. So we're watching this episode, and Marie Kondo goes into a family's home, and the first thing she tells the family is to pull out all of your clothes from your closet and bring them out and put them on a pile. And then as they're looking at this pile, grab one piece of clothing and take hold of it and ask this very question, does it spark joy? If it sparks joy, then keep it. If it doesn't spark joy, throw it away or donate it. And as we're watching this, my wife, Jen, suddenly pauses the TV, and then she goes into our room, 
and she, and she goes into her closet, and she brings a whole pile of clothes and lays it in the living room. And she goes back into the closet, and then she brings another batch of clothes and lays it into the room. And then she goes back into the closet and brings in another batch of clothes and lays it into the room. And I take a look at this, at this pile, and they're all my clothes. <laughs> And then she goes on and says, here, take one, hold it. Does it spark joy? And, as we're, and this is how we spend our Saturday night, right? <laughs> and as we're doing this, there were some clothes that I liked, but the deeper I reached into their pile, there were some pieces of clothing that were actually very ancient. Some I couldn't remember where they came from, and some I didn't even know were in the closet at all. Somewhere made me question whether I've been in Southern Maryland for the past year and a half. Now, where am I going with this? Look at verse 15 again. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This passage is an invitation from John to look into the past to Zechariah 9.9, because 500 years before Jesus, God comes to Zechariah, and he promises to his people who lost their home, their families, their friends, their nation, that one day a king would come, and he will bring restoration, and he will bring peace, and dawn in a new age where you will not be kingless anymore. In other words, Jesus is the king you've been waiting for. He's not plan B. He's not second tier. He's not the cover band, but he's the main character. And John even tells us in verse 16 that the disciples reflecting upon Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, he's fulfilling the long-awaited messianic uh, prophecy written in Zechariah. But the deeper you reach into the scriptures, the more ancient you find Jesus' actions to be. Because 900 years before Jesus, King Solomon, who was David's, king, David's son, is anointed as king over Israel, and he enters the city mounting not a war horse, but a donkey. So Jesus is not fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. He's also fulfilling 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, specifically verse 38, where someone from the line of David will sit on the throne, and how will, he, will we recognize who this king is? He will come sitting on a donkey in humility. So King Solomon is just pointing forward to the greater anointed king. You reach deeper into the pile of clothes, past the college hoodies, the tight jeans phase, the beyond the ripped jeans phase, the baggy 80s pants. And you find yet another more ancient promise. Because in Genesis 49, which was about 1,700 years before Jesus' time, Jacob is pronouncing a prophecy and a blessing over his sons. And when he comes to his son Judah, this is what he says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. This is talking about the king. Where is the king coming from? From the tribe of Judah. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. But pay attention to this. How will, he, how will we know who this king is? Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. See, what this means is that all of history and all of humanity has been setting the stage for Jesus to take place. So when Jesus comes and mounts a donkey, he's not a new challenger walking into the scene. He's not waiting to do a sales pitch in hopes that people will give him a chance. 
He's not coming off the bench. No, he's making the claim that all of life is about him. And that he is the long-awaited answer to mankind. And that without him, you are nothing. Church, this was true 2,000 years ago and it's still true today. Jesus comes to you, to, to us today, because, and his cause is to overthrow you, me, from making your, ourselves the center of life. He's not here to overthrow your boss and make your life easier. He's not here to bring down the government or international enemies. No, Jesus' is, Jesus' cause is to overthrow our sense of entitlement to life. See, when we hear about self-entitlement, we may be quick to deny that we ourselves are self-entitled because, after all, in this community, people work for all the things they have, Right? I mean, I worked for everything. We put in the hours. We put in the sacrifice and the sweat and the blood and the sleepless nights. So we deserve to spend our money the way we want, to spend our free time. That's why it's called free time, the way we want. I mean, I'm tired because why? I work for it, so I deserve it. Our vacations, we work for all those PTOs. So we are entitled to use it for our amusement and our own relaxation. Our families, we put in those sleepless nights we put in with through all the tantrums we deserve to make our kids for our joy and glory but what john wants us to see is that your whole life has and is and is still currently a stage being set for jesus to take place And the parents you were born to were no accident. The high school you attended is not random. The colleges and graduate degrees you've acquired are not meant to promote your image. The kids you were given are not ultimately for your own joy or glory, not even for their own success. The financial stability and the abundance you've managed to acquire and save up was not provided by God so that you could have an easy life and set yourself up for retirement, but it was actually for you to start considering Where can my money go to build God's kingdom as opposed to my own? If you're retired in this community, there's no question that you've worked hard to be where you are. But even in your retirement, Jesus enters and his cause is to challenge you and to remind you that all things in your life worked so so that you can now use that free time for him. Church, do you see that all of life is a stage being built for Jesus to take his rightful place as a king. Church, true humility is recognizing our proper place. Jesus' cause, Jesus' goal is to take for himself center stage at the heart of his people and make us humble. Because all of history, all of our lives were being built up for Jesus to reign. Otherwise, otherwise, John is saying, your life will amount to nothing. Nothing. So here's a question for you. In what areas of your life are you refusing to let King Jesus sit on the throne? I think if we're honest in this community, our time is so valuable. Do we claim our free time as our own because we've worked hard for it? Or do we in true humility, if we're truly humble, do we look to give our time away? Because we're deciding to think less of ourselves, of ourselves less. Is it money? You put in the hours, the many sleepless nights so that your bank account can be ready for the worst thing to happen. What would it look like for Jesus to be king, to take center stage, and not Wells Fargo or Credit Union or Bank of America 
for Citizens Bank to be your king. There's this story, it's a fictitious story, it's a children's story, but I think it gets the point across well, of the donkey that Jesus rode on Palm Sunday. The story goes that the next day, the donkey got up, and he was feeling relatively pretty good. He just had a good day the day before, and uh, he feels super confident, so he went down to uh, the town, ready to be received by the cheering crowd, but nobody notices him. Huh, that's weird. So he takes a stroll to the marketplace, and he says, I'm here, but nobody notices him, and they just whack him in the tail. So he gets frustrated, and he heads down to the gate, and this donkey exclaims, Where are the palm branches? Just yesterday, you had the palm branches. So defeated, he goes back home, and he tells his frustration to his mother, and his mother says, Silly donkey! Don't you know that without him, you are nothing? Church, doesn't, Jesus doesn't want to take center stage in your life to make you miserable but to give you a deeper joy. See, his cause is to make you more glorious than you could make yourself. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, the whole point of the sermon is just be more humble, less self-entitled. Got it. Let me save you the next 10 minutes. And if that's the conclusion you're formulating in your minds, let me tell you right now, that's the quickest way to kill humility in your life. If you're sitting here thinking, got it, be more humble, I'm going to try my best, that's the quickest way to kill your humility from the moment you walk out this door. Because again, you're thinking about what you need to do. Then the important question to ask is, how does Jesus, how does Jesus overthrow my self-entitlement, my self-entitlement to life? Does he come with threats that unless I let him be a king, he will smite me? Or does he come with guilt saying, look at what a terrible, selfish human being you are. You can't even get life right. John tells us no. Friends, John tells us that Jesus' method to make you humble is actually by showing you the, showing you the cost that he paid to be with you. It's by laying, showing you that he laid down his life to purchase a great hope for you and me, which leads us to our third and last point. John wants us to see the king's cost. We mentioned that this crowd was actually very excited about Jesus. And though they had misconceptions about him, there's one sentiment that is actually worth looking into. And that is the hope that Jesus brought during his life on earth and reaching its climax when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And this news that death is not the end, that there is life after death, that we were made to be more than we, uh, more, much more than this earth, that happy ever afters can actually be true for you. This sentiment, it struck a chord in people's hearts back then, and I would argue it still does today. Luke Eplin, who's a writer for the New York Times and the Atlantic, he wrote this fascinating article trying to analyze why Pixar and animation movies are not just for kids anymore. And his conclusion is that Pixar and DreamWorks successfully strike a chord in people's hearts that you are more than you think you are. And as long as you play that tune, people will follow. It's not just a sense of self-esteem, he says, 
but we have this innate desire to be glorious. And Luke Eplin is actually quite right because he's just echoing the words found in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, verse 11, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, note this, God has put eternity into man's heart. So Luke Eplin is actually hitting on something here. Carolyn Kitchener, who's a writer for the Washington Post, she also picks up this idea of being more glorious than we want to be, or this idea of happily, wanting a happy ever after, in her article titled, The Enduring Appeal of the Fairy Tale Wedding. And she's trying to answer why in the world, the world is so captivated and is enamored with royal weddings. I mean, May of last year, Prince Harry married uh, American actress Meghan Markle, and uh, the statistics speak for themselves. There were more than 1.9 billion people all over the world who woke up at ungodly hours to watch this wedding. And I confess, I'm not ashamed to admit, I also woke up at an ungodly hour to watch this wedding. For sermon, sermon illustration purposes, of course. Um, <laughs> but... But Carolyn wants to understand why billions of people who do not even know the bride and groom personally want to watch their wedding. And her conclusion is actually really insightful. I'm not sure if she's a Christian or not, but it's actually very insightful. She says this, Before Giovanni Francesco Straparola invented what is now um, recognized as a standard happy ending, at the end of fairy tales back in the 15th century, you had the prince and princess living as hermits, not getting married, waiting to receive their ultimate rewards in heaven. The, hap- the new happy ending takes place here on earth, and it takes the shape of a wedding. Do you hear what she's saying? People have always had a desire for happy endings and, uh, and glory, but, what, but that desire was actually too far away. It was after death. It was in heaven. But now, through this royal wedding, we can see it. We can touch it. It can actually become ours. It may actually even happen for us. It can happen for you. That's what she's saying. 1.9 billion people are tuning in so that they can grab this dream, this glory, this happiness. And this is the heart desire of mankind. To want to touch heaven, for death to be no more, for violence to cease, for peace to reign, for our bodies to stop decaying, for our marriages to not lose intimacy, for the ones we've lost to still be by our side, for the freedom to not walk in depression, for all anxieties concerning the future to find peace and not having to think about 401ks anymore. And John is telling us that we don't have to dream anymore because in Jesus we have touched, we have seen, we have heard the things that our hearts are longing for. And what made this possible for our hearts to find what they're looking for was that it cost our king everything. See, the moment Jesus decided to mount a donkey and enter Jerusalem was the moment he took on the cause for people like you and me to be able to find God. See, as Jesus enters Jerusalem and moves towards his death, he is paying the cost so that we can find life. As Jesus hangs on the cross for our sins, he is paying the cost so that we can receive love. 
And as Jesus is rejected by his father, he is paying the cost so that we can be embraced as sons and daughters. As Jesus is raised from the dead, he paid the ultimate cost so that we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. All to say, when we see that Jesus paid the ultimate cost so that he can claim our souls, that we are under his watch, we feel less and less the need to fend off for ourselves because our king is watching out for our best entrance. This is why John says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Church, it's Jesus' humility. It's setting our eyes on Jesus' humility that makes us realize that we don't have to fend off for ourselves. It's by seeing his humility that he humbled himself even to dying on a cross to pay for our sins that makes our hearts want to crown him king. And it is this hope that he brings. It is this heart core that he strikes that our hearts are longing and desperate for that can make our search for our happy ever after after him. Let me end with this. There's this great line in the Chronicles of Narnia, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, um, where Mr. Thomas is describing this magical land of Narnia, and he describes it like, that is uh, currently ruled by this evil witch, and everything is snowy, everything's frozen. And he describes the land of Narnia like this. He says, it is winter in Narnia, and has been for so long. Always Christmas, but always winter, but never Christmas. Always winter, but never Christmas. But then he explains a day when the king will return and the hope that the people in Narnia have. And he explains this day like this. When Aslan comes, when the king comes, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets his death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Church, John is inviting us to look forward to the day when this king will return, and this time he won't be sitting on a donkey, but he will be sitting on a majestic white horse stallion. But in the meantime, you can see and touch heaven. You can see glory. You can hear the love of God for you all because Jesus, this king, was humble and paid the cost. And when you see this, when you see your humble king, that this king came for you, you'll want to live life, your life to be a selfless life. Not having to need to focus on yourself because you have a king who gave you everything. And as a result, the world around you will echo the words of the Pharisees. Look. The world has gone after him. Church, go after your king in humility because he gives you himself and glory awaits upon his return. Church, follow the king with no pride. Let's pray. Father, you give us a sense of what it will be like one day in heaven when we're with you. And We know that we can be self-focused, that we can make life about ourselves, but we pray that you will take rule. And Father, reign. Lord Jesus, reign. Overthrow us. But overthrow us with your meekness, with your love and your sacrifice. Help us see you more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.